Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice. Hello and welcome to today's um, teaching. My name is Dr Julia Hempenstall. I'm a GP in Wessex and part of the team that leads on the rolling GP education programme. And today I'm delighted that I've been joined by uh, Dr Richard Roop. Hello, Richard. Hi. Uh, yes, so I'm a uh, portfolio GP uh, until recently, I was a senior partner for Whiteley Surgery, where I've been for 30 years, but I've now semi-retired, although not really, and have uh, accumulated a portfolio working week, which is just great. It is. I'm a portfolio GP. And today you're here because you're, you've become an expert in cancer. And I know you've had national roles uh, working with Cancer Research UK and the RCGP, but also more locally, you work for the Cancer Alliance, the Wessex Cancer Alliance Group, and also the Rapid Investigation Service that's up here in Wessex now. Um, and today what we're going to do is have a conversation for our colleagues to learn from around prevention and screening. Now, the idea of today's conversation is that it's to upskill those of us out there in practice who aren't cancer leads or aren't able to um, work very closely with the oncology and palliative care group. So Richard's here as our expert and he's going to take us through some some learning uh, and some incredible developments. Um, So Richard, can I hand over to you to start? Yeah, so first of all, the prevention arena is a really interesting one. I think for a long time, we thought that it's merely the preserve of public health. Uh, but actually, we as GPs can have a, a huge impact. And it's a rather stark, just under 40% of all cancers are preventable. And we have a, a part to play. Of course, the flip side of that is about 60% of cancer is just bad luck or your genes or whatever. Uh, but, but that 40% is really quite significant. So we're talking in the region of 140,000 cases of cancer per year are preventable, looking at uh, behaviour change. Um, so we've moved on from calling it lifestyle uh, because that uh, suggests that you are where you are through choice. But of course, some things happen because of where you're born, the societies you're in, the communities you're in, peer pressure and so forth. So a lot of people don't actually choose necessarily what we have thought of as lifestyle. So we've changed the nuance to behaviour change. And what we know is that anyone who has spent time with patients can actually influence that behaviour change. So by far and away, the biggest uh, preventative area is, of course, smoking. And we have a really amazing good news story on the smoking front in that in the last eight years, a third of people who were smoking have given up. Um, So smoking prevalence has gone from 21% to about 14% just in eight years. And that has been through a multifaceted strategy of sort of government policies, um, interventions, uh, the move to vaping, which is probably another podcast on its own. Um, But some really positive news stories coming out. However, we still do have 14 percent of the adult population smoking. Mm. It's it's the one that we kind of think of first, isn't it? And it's wonderful to hear that actually there's been huge progress. Uh, and you're right, I think nicotine replacement and vaping is something that we would really like to speak about on another occasion. Um, but I think one of the other things that frightens me about it is to hear that actually such a large proportion of 
our adult population is still smoking. Um, and that's that's a quite an interesting statistic to take uh, to take away, actually. And I'll remember, I love the behavioural change. I love that idea that we're part of behavioural change rather than lifestyle change and enabling our patients with those conversations at any opportunity, really, even when we're not even thinking about um, uh, screening or cancer, just in our every everyday consultation, really. Yeah. And there's a technique that uh, some folk may have come across called uh, brief intervention or very brief intervention. And there's very good data that suggests that even 30 seconds is sufficient to provoke and engender and initiate a behaviour change. And there are some fantastic websites where you can learn the tools of the trade very quickly. And that probably lends itself to another podcast. Um, But it's you don't have to be skilled in the actual advice you give the issue is that you're there as a signposter and uh, you may be familiar with the act advise sorry advise act and assist Mm -hmm. so we basically you ask the question do you smoke if they say yes you then advise them that the best way to give up is with professional support and maybe some chemical uh, support with it so either medication or vaping and the third is to act And we know that if you actually refer the patient yourself there and then you actually get a higher take up than if you just give someone an an address or a phone number. Mm. Now, that's really good advice. And I think we can put some of those resources uh, in the text around this podcast as well. For those of you listening, you can look at them later. And I think the other thing we've got to remember is that we're, we're part of a bigger, wider primary care team now. So think about the people in your practice that you work with, you know, perhaps your social prescribers, your HCAs, other people that can have those conversations around uh, prevention and screening as well. So um, that's really useful. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, so and, and really positive. And that actually applies to exercise, mm-hmm. to obesity and overweight and alcohol. So it, it's the technique is transferable and can be really positive. And we know, for instance, with smokers, there have been repeated surveys that show that about 70 percent of smokers actually want to give up. Uh, but they don't feel they've had the support or the uh, the sort of the, the initiative and the ask to actually do it. And uh, I think probably as GPs, we're getting more confident in addressing the smoking issue. But I still think we cringe a little bit with uh, maybe addressing obesity and overweight. And we know that that is now the second biggest cause of preventable cancer. And it's about 14 percent of cancers are related to obesity and overweight. Uh, Interestingly, if you combine all the factors that go into the system through the mouth, so diet and drink, that is also about a third of the preventable cases. Um, So if you look at overweight and obesity, at alcohol, fibre, which is a really interesting one, and we could maybe touch on that in a a little while, uh, but also the processed meat. If you add all those risk factors together, that's also about a third of preventable cancers. And the other third are made up of ultraviolets, so the melanomas, which are pretty much all preventable, uh, but also occupation. There are a few occupational exposures, so for instance, asbestos, uh, and then also infections. So HPV, for example, is a very good example of that. Yeah, so there's actually there's a broad area where we can essentially make difference in prevention of cancer. Um, and it isn't just about smoking anymore. It's a much wider field. Um, why do you think we struggle to talk to our patients about the link between obesity and preventable cancers? I think there's all this um, sort of social media 
fat shaming um, understanding and concept that we're all a bit, we sort of shy away from it. Uh, I think maybe if you look across the health profession, we probably have uh, certain of our colleagues are carrying a bit of extra weight and you feel a bit hypocritical if you're addressing that. Uh, I think with so few health professionals now smoking, you can sort of address the smoking agenda from a position of being a non or ex-smoker. But if you're slightly more fuller figured, uh, it sounds a bit hypocritical if you're sort of uh, talking about weights yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's just that whole sort of guilt and shame. And I think for a, a long, long time, we've actually been selling the wrong story about obesity and uh, we're moving away from the sort of the calorie counting to more what you eat. And the, again, the, the low carb story probably deserves another podcast. Um, but that's a, a really exciting area, uh, certainly for a lot of our patients. Yeah. And I think if if we can just be aware that we can use this evidence, the science, the science that's now showing us that there are preventable cancers from people um, you know losing weight and keeping in a in a more normal healthier weight that's actually quite a powerful dialogue as well because it's a scientific fact that we can bring and doesn't have any of the additional social media fat shaming or preconceptions that either us as the healthcare professional or them as the patient or the receiver of the information is so I think we need to think about our vocabulary and our our way yeah. of communicating that and I think there's there's the blame culture. And I think it's well recognised that a lot of obesity and overweight is actually related to the culture we live in and the society we live in. And uh, there's some really interesting data that's just come out in the last week about the price to calorie ratios. So the really healthy foods generally are very much more expensive per calorie than the less healthy foods. And if you're on a challenging low income, actually, it can be very difficult to eat healthily. Uh, but I think maybe we've lost the that idea of preparing food ourselves across our full demographic. And certainly if, if we can reintroduce that sort of the fun of cooking um, and maybe get it back into the school curriculum again, that might be helpful. Yeah, some great ideas there. So we've thought a little bit about prevention uh, of cancers and it's it's mind blowing to realise such a large proportion of those that we see in practice could be preventable. Um, yeah. I wonder then there's the other strand that we think about is screening as well and what our, our role is in screening. And also I know there's been quite a few updates and changes to screening and yeah. exciting things coming as well. So with the screening agenda, of course, it is in part preventative. Uh, so in cervical screening, we're finding cellular changes before that cancer has developed and more recently now with the introduction of HPV screening uh, that's uh, again looking very encouraging and allows us to make those diagnoses before a cancer is even developed and a proportion of the bowel screening is actually finding adenomas that are precancerous rather than fully cancerous Uh, but yeah the screening is a really good news story which is a story that isn't uh, profiled very frequently and certainly Uh, A lot of folk don't appreciate the impact it's having. Uh, So we know from uh, very well researched and very thorough data gathering that the screen, the two, the three screening programs, bowel, breast and cervical cancer, they are saving about 10,000 lives a year, uh, which I think is just amazing. Mm. Um, So it works about half of those are cervical. 
And then bowel, uh, say bowel cancer deaths are about 2,400 and breast screening about 1,700. So a really good news story. Mm. If you consider the bowel screening uh, where we're saving those 2,400 lives a year, that's on a basis of a national average take up of only 58%. So if we could increase that maybe up to 70, 75%, which I think are very deliverable levels, we could improve that number considerably and probably over proportionately to the current data, because we know that those who have less uptake are actually from a more deprived background and they actually have a higher incidence of bowel cancer. So if we're going to address some of the inequalities, which I think is probably something we all want to do, uh, then addressing that is a really good way of doing that. And uh, although it's a, a sort of slightly tongue in cheek approach, uh, the idea of what are the lowest hanging fruits, uh, it's very much the, uh, and again, tongue in cheek, that poo is the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, because I get uh, letters back into the system saying that someone's a non-attender for screening, uh, particularly bowel. And, and that's staggering to think that there's so much more that we could do. Do you have any advice for us out in practice as to how we can encourage people to attend screening and particularly bowel screening and poo screening that some may feel um, isn't appropriate or they don't want to engage with? Any advice on that, Richard? Yeah, so interesting, in our practice, my former practice, um, about four or five years ago, we did a, a project of actually sending a letter to everyone whose bowel screening uh, letter came back saying that they hadn't engaged with the programme. And we sent out about 200 letters as this pilot project. And of those 200, 30 then went forward for screening and one had a bowel cancer. So that... that Strap line was 200 stamps to save a life um, and, and it just shows that the impact and we, we again there has been a research actually done in Wessex that I was involved in which showed that that sort of intervention increases bowel screening uptake by around seven or eight percent. That, that, I mean, so that's around a personalised letter from your practice saying this is this is really important. Um, please consider it. Uh, and yeah. what an amazing project that you found one cancer out of all those 200 that you hadn't hadn't engaged previously. That That's in some ways that's a headline for us to tell our patients as well. Come on, but, yeah. you know, please engage with that. So there's definitely I think you're right. So we're going to we're trying to get our cover, um, get more bowel screening across the area. And us as GPs, we do have a, a part to play in that um, there's obviously um, we've seen more and more in practice the use of fit testing I don't know if you're able just to give us a little update uh, and a soundbite on what we need to do with fits and, and how we manage them yeah I think the so the FICO immunochemical test which has replaced the old guaiac test mm -hmm. uh, it's much more user-friendly in that it's only one sample so you don't have to keep anything in the fridge for two or three days mm -hmm. uh, much easier to do and interestingly, already we're seeing an improved take up with the men who had previously had a lower take up, but also some of our um, patients from ethnic minorities, they are much more readily keen to take it out, which previously they hadn't been. And that was for cultural reasons, which were completely understandable. So there has been a, an improvement take up in that. Essentially what it's uh, looking for is human heme 
Whereas previously, the Guayac just looked at any heme. So if you had a steak and chips the night before, you could have actually had a positive test. Uh, but this is very much looking for human heme only and uh, much more specific and sensitive. We have two streams and it's really important to distinguish between the two. So we've got the screening, which uses a threshold level currently of 120 and the symptomatic, which uses a threshold of either six or 10, depending on which area you're in. Um, and again, really important that if someone has had a negative screening, but then has symptoms in the months afterwards, don't think that the screening says that it's negative because the threshold is much, much lower for symptomatic patients. Excellent. So in that situation, would it be worth sending a, a repeat fit if you had a symptomatic patient? Yeah, absolutely. So if you have a symptomatic patient, it's, you don't even need to look to see whether they've had recent screening. You need to be uh, dealing with that as though they're unscreened. Yeah. And not be reassured by a screening test recently. That's, that's a useful a useful take home message. Really important. OK. And other um, other screening um, that any other sort of updates or sort of future things coming that we should be aware of? Yeah. So just locally, we're one of the areas that has the what are being called lung health checks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a really interesting title, which was based on going out onto the high street and just asking the public, mm-hmm. uh, because as soon as you call it cancer screening, a proportion of people won't attend. Whereas a lung health check, uh, people are much more willing to attend. And particularly if that's not necessarily in the depth of a hospital, which a lot of people associate with illness and death, uh, again, you get a higher take up. And its target is in that it's being uh, rolled out in the uh, postcodes that have high deprivation levels. Uh, so we're not going for the, the worried well of leafy Hampshire, but we're going for the, the high smoking prevalence inner city areas Mm -hmm. and we know from a couple of studies that this was essentially launched this program that targeted screening is being highly effective and is finding lung cancer as an early stage and what has changed certainly in my working life is that early stage cancer is now curable whereas I think we all thought of lung cancer as a death sentence Mm -hmm. and to a degree what was the point in looking for it. So that is a huge change with actual re- real benefit for the people that we pick up. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's... And, also, and then also coming down uh, our sort of uh, our street, as it were, locally, again, we are a, a research area for a new screening technique called the CITER sponge, which all sounds a bit gruesome. Mm-hmm. And that is a uh, not too large a thing about the size of a gobstopper that is attached to a bit of string that you swallow uh, it then and holding onto the end of the string. Uh-huh. And then the capsule is broken down with the stomach acid to release a sponge. And then you pull that back up, up through the esophagus and it basically draws cells as it comes. And that can then be sent away to the labs for analysis and can, va- can find Barrett's or even early es- esophageal cancers. Gosh, so it's progressing all the time, all the time. That's amazing. Really exciting. And I think uh, primary care is going to have a part to play in that. Of course, we are aware that we're trying not to give an extra burden of work uh, because we're all schooner rigged at the moment and don't know which way to look. Uh, But these are sort of developments that ultimately will save consultations. 
Yeah, absolutely amazing. Well, Richard, I think we are running out of time. It has been so wonderful to hear um, around what, what our role as GPs out there is on the prevention strategy and the, the conversations that we can have. And I think my take home messages are really around conversations using behavioural rather than lifestyle and conversations with patients about the things that they can change that might make a difference because we, as we've heard, so many cancers are preventable and that our role is, is in keeping people healthy so we should have those conversations wonderful to hear about the um, screening and what a success it is and also what our, our, our kind of our role in that is in terms of uh, finding patients and, and helping them to access the right screening um, and again showcasing how Wessex is at the forefront of this with more change with with sponges and lung checks um, really exciting. Um, Richard, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for taking us through that so expertly. And I do hope those people listening uh, have taken, taken that on board. Richard and I are going to be recording again and there are other podcasts available. In the um, in the link to this, I will also put all the resources that Richard's talked about. And Richard, there's a bit of data that we can share to really prove to people that this is happening, can't we? Absolutely. And for, for those who really want to dig deeper, I'll also attach the references so you can look at the original papers and original sources. Brilliant. So that's it for today. Stay safe and thank you for coming along. Thanks, Richard. Hey, thanks so much. Bye. Bye bye.